Black Canary. I'll need a sparring partner. I'm Zatanna. Why do you care about some leggy dame in nylons? Or have I answered my own question? Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for magic. Welcome to Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. I'm Ryan Daly, and the last episode I promised would be the final episode of 2016. But I also mentioned how bad I am at keeping promises. Hence, here we are. Tis the holiday season for many people, including some, if not all, of my listeners, and I wanted to celebrate Christmas and New Year's and Hanukkah and Kwanzaa, all of the end of the year holidays, with a special episode spotlighting a Christmas adventure featuring Black Canary or Zatanna. The selection was fairly limited. In fact, there was really only one story I could think of that showcased Black Canary in a Christmas story. But boy, is it a good one. The Man Who Murdered Santa Claus originally appeared in Justice League of America issue 110, released in December 1973. That book was the first of several 100-page, super-spectacular issues. It featured one new story, the aforementioned Christmas-themed story starring the Justice League, including Black Canary, as well as two reprints. One was a Golden Age story of the Justice Society of America from All-Star Comics 40. That included Black Canary as a guest star before she officially joined the team. The other reprint was from Justice League of America 51, the story Z as in Zatanna in Zero Hour. There you go. Plenty of Black Canary and Zatanna in that issue. Unfortunately, I don't own that issue, but that's not where I read The Man Who Murdered Santa Claus anyway. The story has been reprinted several times, including the 1988 Christmas with the Superheroes special. Christmas with the Superheroes reprinted several holiday-themed stories starring Batman, Superman, the Teen Titans, and the Legion of Superheroes. But for our purposes, I'm just talking about the Justice League story. I will give a mention, though, to the super-sweet wraparound cover by John Byrne that shows Black Canary, Green Arrow, Batman and Robin, Superman, Wonder Girl, and Wildfire from the Legion, gathered around a Christmas tree full of presents while their costume boots hang like stockings from the fireplace. It's a really adorable cover, with Dinah handing Ollie a wrapped present that is clearly a bow. Ollie's scratching his head like, uh, am I supposed to act like I don't know what this is? Am I supposed to look surprised when I open this? The same basic gimmick is repeated lower on the cover with Robin holding a wrapped batarang. Batman, ever the detective, listens to his present as if he can deduce what's inside. Superman, too, tries to spy what's in his gift box, but it's lined with lead, preventing his x-ray vision from revealing the secret. Couple all of this with wildfire decorating the tree and the look of childlike wonder on Donna Troy's face, and it's just an absolutely wonderful cover that really hits the spirit of the season. And in the spirit of giving, I'm going to give some of my fellow podcasters free advertisement by playing some promos for their shows. When I return, I'll tell you all about The Man Who Murdered Santa Claus. Don't go away. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see... You are about to see. Because you demanded it. It's Treasury Cast, a podcast devoted to the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. DC, Marvel, Archie, IDW, and more 
bigger than life. It's the Treasury Cast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on fireandwaterpodcast.com. Take the Earth's mightiest heroes, each an invincible champion of justice, and band them together to assemble the legendary Justice League of America. For 261 issues and three annuals, the DC Universe was defended from threats on Earth and beyond by this legendary team. Operating from a cave in Happy Harbor to a satellite orbiting 22,300 miles above the Earth to uh, Detroit, Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast, will follow the League through all their evolutions. Please join your host, Mike Peacock, as I seek to cover all of the issues of the classic pre-crisis Justice League of America series. Through the magic of the JLA transporter, each issue will be randomized, with special episodes covering a complete story arc if needed. Along with the issue coverage, we shall also look at what the then-current members of the Justice League were up to in solo appearances in other comics for the JLA cover month issue. So do not hesitate to activate your JLA signal device for Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast on classicjla.podbean.com or by subscribing through iTunes. I don't need a lot of presents to make my Christmas bright. I just need my baby's arms wound around me tight. Oh, Santa, hear my plea. Santa, bring my baby back to me. Santa, bring my baby back to me. The Christmas tree is ready. The candles all aglow. But with my baby far away, the good is a mistletoe. Oh, Santa, Man Who Murdered Santa Claus is written by Len Wein, penciled by Dick Dillon, inked by Dick Giordano, colored by Glenn Whitmore, and edited by Julie Schwartz. There is also a special thanks credit to Green Lantern fan Duffy Voland. The story opens with the world's finest duo of Superman and Batman watching a volunteer Santa get dressed before he goes to visit some orphans. Suddenly, an explosion rips through the room where Santa was changing. Superman manages to absorb most of the blast, saving Batman from all but perhaps a mild concussion. When the heroes enter the blown-out bedroom, they find their volunteer Santa Claus dead, with a key in his hand and a note from his killer. To the Justice League of America. A Christmas gift to you from me, a very extra special key. Beneath the arch, it fits a lock that, once it's turned, will save a block of city folk, both mayor and bum, from being blown to kingdom come. So waste no time. Don't hesitate. You'll have till twelve to find the gate. This key will fit, though I admit, I think you'll be too late. Signed, an admirer. Superman and Batman activate their emergency signal devices to send a distress call to all active members of the Justice League. However, it being the holiday season and all, several teammates are unable to respond. The Flash, the Atom, the Elongated Man, and Aquaman are all indisposed and unable to participate in this adventure. On the other hand, the android Red Tornado is willing to ditch his girlfriend to respond to the distress signal. 
Likewise, Green Arrow and Black Canary, who had been spending this evening with their whole bodies under the mistletoe, decided the emergency is more important than unwrapping each other's goodies. Hal Jordan, the Green Lantern of Sector 2814, also decides this emergency must take precedence over his social life. Unfortunately, Hal is in the shower when the signal goes off, and when he darts out to respond to the League, he slips on a bar of soap and knocks himself unconscious. Yep, Green Lantern slips on a bar of soap and falls down in the bathroom. There he lays unconscious while the signal device continues to respond. Finally, his ring, acting on a kind of autopilot, slides off his finger and levitates above him. It scans Hal, finding no permanent damage, but determines he cannot perform his duty as the designated guardian of the sector, so the ring flies off in search of a replacement. But not just any replacement, the sanctioned alternate Green Lantern of the sector, John Stewart, who is standing on a snowy ghetto street telling friends about his lousy day when the ring slides onto his finger, drapes him in the glowing uniform of the Green Lantern, and carries him off against his will to the Justice League satellite headquarters in geosynchronous orbit 22,300 miles over the Earth. It's a pathetically small group when John arrives, only Superman, Batman, Green Arrow, Black Canary, and Red Tornado, and they all want to know who is this stranger dressed like Green Lantern in their midst. Ollie, at least, has heard Hal Jordan talk about his replacement, so he allows John to explain his presence. The Ring recounts how Hal slipped on a bar of soap and fell down in the shower, knocking himself out, something the others will be sure to give Hal crap about in the future. Then they get down to the business of the current emergency, and Ollie notes how much it sucks to have to fight crime on Christmas Eve. Red Tornado, being an artificial being, cannot comprehend the spirit of Christmas, and asks why this night is different than any other. Ollie doesn't know how to explain it to the mechanical man, and Reddy assumes Ollie's failure to explain is because he's stupid. Which isn't, like, a totally off-the-mark assumption. Anyway, Batman explains the situation to the newcomers. The key left with the dead Santa Claus fits a lock somewhere in the world, and if the heroes don't find that lock before midnight, an entire city block will be destroyed. Batman deduces that the lock is somewhere in the city of St. Louis, Missouri, beneath the famed Gateway Arch. On a snowy Christmas Eve, Superman, Red Tornado, and the new Green Lantern meet atop the arch. Superman suggests they tackle the problem like census takers, go to every single door in the city to see if the key fits. Only problem is how ridiculously inefficient that plan is. If only they had someone with the speed of the Flash on their roster, the Scarlet Speedster could do it in no time. Rather than point out the fact that they do have someone with the approximate speed of the Flash, namely Superman, Red Tornado comes up with an alternate scheme. He has Jon Stewart use the Green Lantern ring to make the key Geiger counter-sensitive to the lock it fits. Then all they have to do is carry the key in the general vicinity of the mystery lock, and it will start to vibrate, alerting them to the right location. Jon Stewart proves to be a man of not only exceptional willpower, but also imagination and trust, because none of what Red Tornado said makes any sense. But they do it anyway, because, as they say, it's comics. Then, once more forgetting the fact that Superman is faster than anybody except maybe the Flash, the Red Tornado carries the irradiated key and whirls like a miniature cyclone through the streets of St. Louis, proving that systemic prejudice is not just a trait found in humans, but in human-created robots too, Red Tornado checks the ghetto last. The key begins to vibrate as soon as Reddy spins through an impoverished neighborhood until he finds the matching lock in a condemned building. The other five heroes meet him there. Before the Justice League can enter the old building, they're interrupted by a scene right out of Dickens. And I don't mean ghosts, I mean three poor destitute children begging for spare change. 
One of the kids even appeals to Jon Stewart's blackness to sympathize with their plight. Jon considers using his ring to create money for them, but Green Arrow tells him that's not how the Green Lantern power is supposed to work. The best thing Jon can do for them, Ali says, is help the League stop the block from being blown to smithereens. Otherwise, it won't matter if these kids are rich or poor. They and everyone nearby will all be dead. Good advice from the liberal bleeding heart Ali. Let these poverty-stricken children pick themselves up by their bootstraps. Reluctantly, John follows the League inside the building, while a mysterious stranger watches the action unfold on a monitor. Once inside, the heroes talk about the building's rundown condition and what it must be like living in poverty, and then a trapdoor opens up beneath them. Despite the fact that half of them can fly, all six Leaguers fall into a narrow pit. When they get up, Green Arrow and Batman observe a miniature sun lowering down on them. Green Lantern tries to stop it, but the sun, he notes, must have a yellow core because his ring is powerless against it. A yellow core, and yet the radiation it gives off matches that of a red sun, because it's sapping all of Superman's powers. Still, the Man of Steel refuses to quit on his friends, and after arguing with Green Arrow, Superman hurls himself into the mini-sun, causing an explosion that neutralizes the threat and seems to atomize Superman too. Black Canary mourns the loss of Superman, while everyone else tells her they need to carry on with the mission. A door opens, leading the five remaining heroes into a new room, a room that promptly seals them shut as soon as they're all inside. Also in the room is a yellow circus calliope, playing awful carnival music and spewing poison gas into the airtight room. Neither Green Lantern's ring powers nor Red Tornado's wind powers have any effect on the gas, but for some reason, Black Canary uses her sonic scream at just the right pitch to hold off the gas so it doesn't poison them. You know, because ultrasonic vibrations are so effective against gas, but Red Tornado's ability to create a vacuum is utterly useless in this scene. Sure. Anyway, another secret door opens up, allowing the heroes to escape, all except for Black Canary, who has to hold off the gas. Green Arrow refuses to leave his girlfriend, so Black Canary judo-tosses him through the door, letting it slam shut after him, trapping her in the room with the gas and that dreadful calliope music. What a way to die! Ali frantically tries to get back into the room to save Dinah, but it's too late. Meanwhile, all of this is being broadcast on a television monitor watched by the villain of this issue, The Key. Was anyone surprised that the bad guy was the key given all of the clues at the beginning? No, I'm really asking. This was only the key's third appearance, his first in six years. Did many readers actually remember this guy when the story came out? Batman, Green Arrow, Green Lantern, and Red Tornado continue through the death trap-laden building, coming to a new room where giant balls attack them. No, really, giant colorful spheres, like Christmas ornaments, rolling towards them, threatening to crush them. Batman warns his teammates not to let any of the balls touch them, then immediately ignores his own advice and kicks an ornament that was about to crush Green Arrow. As soon as Batman kicks the ball, his leg is swallowed up by the permeable surface, and soon the Caped Crusader is completely absorbed by the sphere. Another doorway opens up, but the killer ornaments are keeping the heroes trapped. Ali guesses that the balls track them by their body heat, so he ignites two incendiary arrows and, you know, rather than fire the arrows with his bow like he would, he carries them, making himself a target for all the spheres, thus giving Jon Stewart and Red Tornado time to slip out of the room. Naturally, there's another trap waiting for the two remaining heroes. This time, John and Reddy confront giant tin soldiers. And naturally, these tin soldiers can turn yellow and increase their density so that the hero's powers have no effect on them. Just as the tin soldiers have the last two heroes pinned against the wall, said wall opens up, revealing another secret room. John and Reddy fall into a secret tunnel separated from the marauding toy soldiers. 
Back in his secret monitor room, the Key watches this and thinks about his last encounter with the Justice League. A failure, obviously, that landed the Key in prison with a 20-year sentence. That sentence was suspended, however, when the prison doctors discovered the Key was dying basically of cancer. The prognosis was not good. The doctors didn't expect the Key to live through the year. So, being the vengeful supervillain type, the Key devised this whole complicated scheme of murdering a fake Santa, leading the Justice League of America through a maze of death traps, and killing them all so that he could say he outlived his enemies, all as one big Christmas gift to himself. Now that's somebody who gets the holiday spirit. But before the Key can celebrate his victory, his good cheer is dashed by the presence of Green Lantern and Red Tornado, who survived his latest death trap. And they are not alone, either. Superman and Black Canary are also alive and well. So are Batman and Green Arrow. To the Key's shock and dismay, all of the heroes survived, thanks to the timely intervention of... the Phantom Stranger. Enraged, the Key throws a lever before any of the heroes can stop him. This lever activates the Doom Bomb that, when it explodes, will level part of the city. The Key also opens another trap door, this one below himself. He escapes, boasting that he defeated the Justice League in the second best way possible, by killing a whole lot of people on their watch. The Phantom Stranger tells the heroes the countdown has begun. They don't have much time to evacuate the neighborhood. And then, I guess he leaves or something. It's the Phantom Stranger, of course. He just disappears. Anyway, Superman, Batman, Black Canary, Green Arrow, Green Lantern, and Red Tornado evacuate everyone within the blast radius seconds before the Doom Bomb goes off. Flying high above the city, Jon Stewart casts an energy dome over the neighborhood, containing the explosion and the concussive shockwave so that it doesn't destroy any more than the slums of St. Louis. You know, the power of the Green Lantern probably could have stopped the explosion altogether. Well, so could the power of Superman or Red Tornado. But it's like Chekhov's Doom Bomb. You mention it in Act 1, so you better see an explosion in Act 3. And it turns out that Jon Stewart allowed the bomb to go off on purpose so that he could use his energy ring and his architectural background to rebuild the projects even better than they were before. As was pointed out earlier, taking the poor kids out of their squalor violated the Green Lantern Code for some reason. But cleaning up the squalor, fixing the condemned buildings, and exterminating the rats and roaches, that's all okay. And that's what Jon Stewart did. He gave those kids and their community a super home makeover for Christmas. And Hal Jordan is still probably lying on the bathroom floor. Later on, back at the Justice League satellite, after Batman and Green Lantern have taken off, the other four heroes do a little Christmas celebration with the exchanging of gifts. Specifically, Superman and Black Canary give a gift to Red Tornado, while Ollie does his best Scrooge off to the side. What gift could they bestow upon the artificial man? Why, it's a brand new costume designed and sewn by Black Canary. And with a whirl of motion, the drab old Silver Age Red Tornado is replaced by the even more garish Bronze Age Red Tornado. But he still doesn't understand why humans feel this need to give gifts. Is it the same intrinsic feeling that compelled each of the heroes to sacrifice him or herself for the others while battling the key? Dinah says not exactly, but Superman's not so sure. He speculates that maybe the custom of gift-giving is in fact tied to an act of sacrifice. After all, is Christmas not named after the man who sacrificed himself for all humankind? Ollie's had enough philosophy for one night. Just wish him a Merry Christmas and be done with it, he grumbles. Black Canary kisses her boyfriend and says, Merry Christmas, sweetheart. And Superman looks at us, the readers, and says, Merry Christmas to everyone. The story ends with a caption box that reads, 
That is the sentiment we'd all like to share. Season's greetings from all of us here to men of goodwill everywhere. I'm going to take another promo break and come back after that with my thoughts on this story. Justice League International, Bwahaha Podcast, a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis, will be going issue by issue in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter, Batman, Dr. Fate, Black Canary, Fire, Ice, Maxwell Lord, Oberon, Captain Marvel, Rocket Red, Captain Adam, Mr. Miracle, Guy Gardner, Booster Gold, Blue Beetle, Nort, and many, many more. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast coming March 2016 as part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? Stop and listen! Stop and listen to me! Listen! Listen! Listen to me! They're not human! Everyone! They're here already! You're next! November 4th, 1988. Earth is invaded by an alien alliance composed of several species, including the Dominators, the Kuns, the Danegarians, and the Durlins. And they want our superheroes. Even though Australia has been decimated, the United Nations response is unequivocal. Drop dead. First Strike, the Invasion podcast, takes you back to that moment in time and covers the entire Invasion DC Comics crossover. Issue by issue, tie-in by tie-in. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes. First Strike, the Invasion podcast. A proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember, Melbourne. Okay, I'll cop to the fact that this is not a Black Canary story. It's a Justice League story that happens to feature Black Canary, and not even in a truly standout way. She gets two kind of signature moments in the story, though neither of them is very impressive. First, she's quick to sacrifice herself to an excruciating death of poison by Calliope, even though how her sonic canary cry keeps the poison gas at bay is preposterous. The scene does more to showcase Ollie's love for her and his emotional response to her supposed death. The other thing she does is create Red Tornado's costume. I guess that's pretty cool. I mean, she's a woman, so naturally she can design and sew costumes. Actually, Dinah's eye for fashion may come up again in an issue of The Brave and the Bold or World's Finest. Anyway, yeah, Black Canary is responsible for Red Tornado's costume upgrade. Cool, I guess. Okay, I'm done talking about Black Canary, so why did I pick this story for Power of Fishnets? Because it's Christmas, and Christmas is a time for giving, so I'm giving Black Canary a pass, uh-huh, so I can talk about two other characters, characters I didn't get to talk about on the Secret Origins podcast because their stories were glaringly omitted from the series. I'm talking about Jon Stewart and Red Tornado. I was listening to an episode of... I think it was Back to the Bins a couple of months ago, and the guys were fielding questions from the listeners. One of the questions was something like, if you could remove one character from the DC Universe, who would it be? And as I was listening, the answer came to me almost instantly. Red Tornado. I don't like this character. Actually, I don't even know if that's the problem. 
I have no use for Red Tornado. If his entire publishing life was deleted from history, I wouldn't miss it. I don't think he brings anything substantive or constructive to the Justice League. There has never been a story with Red Tornado where I didn't think that issue would have been better with Martian Manhunter or somebody else. He's the ugly blotch on the otherwise beautiful mural of iconic satellite-era Justice League group shots. And yet... While I groan and roll my eyes frequently at the sight of him with the other members of the Justice League, I may be too quick to wish him erased from existence. Because if I'm being honest, I can see a place for Reddy in the DC Universe, just not as a hero. He should have been a villain, Tio Morrow's murder machine just like Amazo was the creation of Professor Ivo. Red Tornado could have been one of those colorful yet underperforming Justice League villains that popped up every couple of years, like Despero, the Royal Flush Gang, or the Shark. And his costume, the new look as redesigned by Black Canary after Dick Dillon in this issue, is pretty flashy and striking. He grabs your eye, for sure. Actually, he could be much more imposing than Shark and Royal Flush Gang. If you amp up his powers and he can control winds of enough force to generate hurricanes and tidal waves, that is a serious global threat worthy of the Justice League. Couple that with the red costume, the cape, a sense of megalomania or inferiority complex, and you've got a Magneto meets Ultron level bad guy. So... Yeah, them's my feelings on Red Tornado. He's an embarrassment to the Justice League and should have never been a member, but he could have been a cool recurring villain if things were different. Okay, let's move on to Jon Stewart, or as some people call him, Green Lantern. Duffy Volan gets a special thanks credit on the title page of this story, cited as a Green Lantern fan. Volan was editor of a Marvel fanzine for a time. I wonder if he got the shout-out because he requested that Jon Stewart come back after his appearance in Green Lantern 87. Oh yes, this Justice League of America story, published late in 1973, was just the second appearance of the replacement Green Lantern after he debuted more than two years earlier. And after this, it would be more than three years before John showed up again. DC really didn't know what to do with him until 1984 when he took over the Green Lantern book up until around the time of Crisis on Infinite Earths. I really like the scene where John goes up into the Justice League satellite for a couple of reasons. First, Green Arrow name-drops Hal Jordan as vouching for John as the replacement Green Lantern. The thing is, at this point, John didn't know Green Lantern's secret identity. The discovery of Hal and John's civilian IDs was a plot point in the Green Lantern comics in the 80s when John went to work for Ferris Air. So Ollie just stupidly outed his best friend to a relative stranger in front of half the League. I'm assuming there are layers of code word clearance on all of the Justice League files, or if there wasn't before, there certainly was after this issue, with Batman at the highest clearance level and Ollie way down at the bottom. Hal, too. Hal's a moron. He slipped on a bar of soap getting out of the shower. I'm not even sure they're allowed to access the Justice League files. They might just get old copies of Who's Who. The other thing I love about this scene in the satellite is when Batman initially refers to John by name and then corrects himself, calling him Green Lantern. It's a great bit of characterization that Batman A. gives a damn about secret identities, and B. respects the Green Lantern ring enough that if it chose Jon Stewart out of everyone in the world, that's a pretty big endorsement. This was definitely from an era where Batman knew how to trust people. 
And John kicks ass in this issue. Despite the fact that he keeps getting yellow obstacles thrown up in his way, he still comes across like a worthy addition to the team and a natural hero. And his creative solution at the end is really wonderful. When the tenement buildings in the neighborhood are destroyed, he rebuilds them, but not just as they were, he makes them better, like they were brand new. It's not a golden ticket, but as charitable donations go, this is a really sweet gift. John Stewart is easily the best part of this story, which is good because I like the character. I've actually grown to like him a lot more just in the last year. They say absence makes the heart grow fonder, and the absence of John in Secret Origins really made me pine for the character. I've often said that Hal Jordan is my favorite Green Lantern, to a point that is still true, and it's based on three things. First is the almighty nostalgia factor. When I think of Green Lantern, I revert to the image of the Super Friends and Superpowers action figure, and I see Hal. I also love Jeff Johns' run on Green Lantern, starting with Rebirth on through the New 52. Whatever else he does in his long career, I think Jeff Johns will and should be remembered for his contributions to Green Lantern. He made that book awesome, and he made Hal Jordan cool. And I say Johns made Hal cool because the more Green Lantern comics I read from the Bronze Age through Crisis, it's really hard to like Hal. I get the people who hate him. Hal's a jackass for much of his career. If that was when I first discovered him, I would probably hate Hal Jordan too. But that's not my reference for Hal. I think of Johns as Hal, so he gets by. The other thing that Hal has that none of the other human Green Lanterns have is a good origin and a compelling secret identity. Hal is a test pilot. He puts himself in danger every time he goes to work. You believe he's a man without fear, or at least a man who can overcome great fear if we're going on the modern take of the character. None of the Green Lanterns since Hal have had that sense of greatness in their backstory. Jon Stewart is an architect. How does that demonstrate his fearlessness? Guy Gardner's a gym teacher. Kyle Rayner's an artist. Simon Baz is... I actually don't know. I don't know Jessica Cruz's deal either. The point is, and I think this is one of the reasons why we didn't see Jon Stewart's secret origin, is that he doesn't really have one. John needed an exciting job like Hal's. He should have been a pilot, or a firefighter, or a rock climber. If he's gotta be an architect, put him on top of a new construction project, standing on steel girders 30 stories up in the air. The other reason for his lack of origin is there wasn't really a good narrative spark for his creation. He was created to be the black superhero so DC could say they made one. He's a racial character, a symbolic character. That was his genesis. That defines him. But race as an issue changed in the decades since John's first appearance, and the character's relevance diminished as racial tensions became less and less overt. After the L.A. riots and the O.J. Simpson trial, America moved into what they thought was a post-racial culture. John Stewart, without an interesting foundation of his own, had little to offer beyond tokenism, as seen in the Justice League animated series. This should have lifted John to unprecedented levels of popularity, but in the comics, he was an afterthought, because being a black hero wasn't special anymore. I mean, we elected a black president. Surely race wasn't an issue anymore, right? Well, if you've been awake recently, you know that's not true at all. The day after the 2016 presidential election, members of the Ku Klux Klan marched proudly down the street in their white robes. Hate crimes based on race and ethnicity are on the rise. The nominee for attorney general is an enemy of the NAACP. And this is just within the last two months. What about the last two years where police shootings of unarmed black men and women and children have cast a harsh spotlight on the truth that race relations 
Muslims in America are not good at all. Has there ever been a better time for a black Green Lantern? DC needs to take a page out of the O'Neill Adams playbook and bring Green Lantern out of the stars and back to the streets. But don't do it with Hal. Jon Stewart should be in Ferguson and Baltimore and Dallas, standing with the throngs of people demanding justice for the shooting of their people. Hashtag Black Green Lanterns Matter. That's your first story arc. Can you imagine the cathartic joy that readers would feel when Green Lantern kicks the crap out of a Steve Bannon cipher and Breitbart Nation? We'll never have something like Captain America punching Hitler again, but I would settle for Jon Stewart powering blasting Richard Spencer into oblivion. I didn't see myself getting that political when this episode began, and if I have upset you because you listen to this podcast for escapism and fantasy, then I apologize. On the other hand, if I've upset you because you sympathize with monsters like Steve Bannon and Richard Spencer, go f*** yourself. There. Now this feels like a Christmas with my family. Okay, getting away from the racial overtones of the character, there is one more reason why I like Jon Stewart. The classic Green Lantern costume designed by Gil Kane is one of my favorite costumes in all of superhero comics. I just love the look. It's terrific. And I love it on Jon in these early days. Aesthetically, I think the costume actually looks better on a man with brown skin. I mean, comic book brown skin, that is. I think the costume works better on Jon than Hal. I also love John with hair. It doesn't need to be a huge afro, but it should be a little bit more than a fade, you know? And I'm saying all of this to reinforce how much I enjoyed reading this Justice League story. Dick Dillon drew one of the best representations of John Stewart that I have ever seen, and this really makes me wish he would have joined the Justice League at an earlier time. Like 1960, for instance. Anyway, that is all I have to say about The Man Who Murdered Santa Claus. It's a great superhero Christmas story. No, it doesn't have much to do with Black Canary or Zatanna. This was really a stealth Green Lantern podcast. And that's going to have to be okay, because without Secret Origins, I may from time to time use this show to explore other characters I don't get a chance to talk about that often. That's a good note to end on, I think. I am really looking forward to where this podcast takes me in 2017. My other shows will keep me pretty busy, but when I get new episodes of Fishnets out, you can look forward to Black Canary Stories from World's Finest and the continued chronological adventures of Zatanna. The next one is a magical team-up with The Flash. Until then, I want to wish all of my listeners a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and Happy New Year. When I was young, I believed in Santa Claus Fishnets is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Power of Fishnets Facebook page. You can also find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. 
Power of Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on this show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening, and Merry Christmas.